morning. We are once again in the book of Romans, and that's the series that I'm going through. Oscar, if you were, uh, you know, if you join us regularly, you know that Oscar is going through the book of Philippians, and I'm going through the book of Romans. And today we are in Romans chapter 6, and we are in cha- uh, verses 15 to 23. I can go ahead and invite you guys to turn there with me now. If you're using one of those black Bibles in front of you, it can be found on page 943. Uh, to give you some brief background and a summary for those of you who are joining us recently uh, about Romans, he wrote to this letter uh, to the church in Rome because he wanted to encourage them in the gospel. And he not only wanted to encourage them in the gospel, but he wanted to enlist their partnership with him uh, or partnership with them in his mission to Spain because he knew that the gospel hadn't been preached there yet. So just imagine in that time, Christ dies on the cross for the sins of everybody who would repent and believe. He is raised from the dead three days later. The church is started officially. There's only one start of the church in church history. And that happens in Acts chapter 2 where Christ pours out His Spirit. And so naturally, the gospel truths are going outward from Jerusalem. And the gospel hadn't yet gone to Spain. And Paul is so eager to take this gospel of free grace to Spain where it had not yet been preached. He's a missionary. He is a pastor at heart, a church planter at heart. And in effort to encourage the church in the gospel, chapters 1 to 4, you know, if you haven't been here with us regularly, uh, what he does there is he explains to us what the gospel of grace is. We can be saved. Sinners now, because of the grace of God, can be saved by grace as a gift through faith, not works, in Christ alone. That's chapters 1 to 4. In chapters 5 to 8, he talks about the so what. There are, chapters 5 to 8 are like practical implications of the gospel. If you believe this, if you really believe in Jesus Christ, if God's sovereign grace has operated on your heart, these are the blessings that come through salvation. That's chapters 5 to 8. These chapters are about the so what of the gospel. The life of the Christian, Paul goes on to say, is a life of peace with God. Right Where once we were hostile to God and God was against us, now in Christ Jesus we have peace with God. The Christian life is a life of grace, a life in grace. So the grace that God saves us with, He roots us in. And so we have regular, we have ongoing access to this grace. The Christian life is also a life of hope. So as strong as Christ Jesus is, as He overcame Satan, sin, and death, so strong is our salvation. So strong is our hope. And then from our chapter that we're looking at, Romans chapter 6, from our passage today, verses 15 to 23, we see here, and this is our main point if you're taking notes, that the Christian life is a life of righteousness. The Christian life is a life of righteousness. In fact, it must be by necessity. The Christian life must be a life of righteousness. Now, let me be clear before we move on to our official points, before we read here, the passage, righteousness or works, good deeds, those types of things. Righteousness is not the basis of the Christian salvation. In other words, we do not work for salvation. We are not saved by works. But righteousness is the natural consequence of salvation. In other words, you are really saved by Christ the Holy One. If Christ Jesus has given you His Holy Spirit, then naturally you are going to be walking in His righteousness, walking in holiness. Right, so, so if you're taking notes here, make sure you write this down. Righteousness itself is not the basis of salvation, but the consequence of salvation. 
And a lot of people, frankly, struggle to understand this. We struggle to understand it in different ways, but I find that the self-righteous in particular struggle to understand this, that salvation is by grace, that, that righteousness is not the foundation of our salvation, but it is a natural consequence, right? Just put yourself in the self-righteous shoes, the shoes of the self-righteous, right? Maybe you guys can identify They spend their lives thinking that good deeds is, in fact, the basis of salvation. And so when they hear the gospel of grace, it's an insult to everything that they've been working for. It is almost unfair to hear, what is this gospel of grace thing? Because I've been spending my whole entire life working for my righteousness. It is an offensive thing. And so in response to this gospel, they might want to write off such grace. They might want to object to such grace. And Paul, the author of the letter here, writing as he does, he brings up these possible objections. It's almost like he steps into the shoes of the self-righteous and asks the questions on behalf of them. And then he goes on to answer them, bringing people into the truth. And so for the Christian, sin is to be dead to us. We are saved by grace, but at the same time, we are to live to righteousness. We are called to righteousness. And then in our passage today, Paul puts forward yet another objection to this gospel of grace. That's where we're going here. Our passage today is just a connection to what, what uh, came before. Look at 6.15. He says there, uh, it's 15, 6.15. What then, are we to sin because we are not under law but under this grace? And he gives the same answer, by no means there. This is the question that was basically posed earlier, but he's answering it from a different perspective here. And uh, basically the rest of our passage is his answer. So having, keep in mind, having already explained the basis of salvation, that is grace, here we have an explanation of salvation's consequence. That is righteousness. If the root of salvation is grace, the fruit of salvation is righteousness. And according to Christ, the Christian life must be a life of righteousness, not sin. You cannot, we cannot use God's grace as a license to sin. Let's go ahead and read verses 15 to 23. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either to sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness." I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, let's go ahead and look at our first point. If you're taking notes, we all live lives 
of obedience to something. We all live lives of obedience to something. In our passage, the analogy of slavery is used here. The analogy of being underneath something is presented. And he mentioned it in verse 15, right? If we are not under the law, but under grace, should we go on sinning? That's the objector's point of view. So when he says under the law, that can sound kind of confusing, especially if you're just dropping into Romans chapter 6 for the first time. But understand that sin and law go hand in hand in, in this section here. Sin, that is the, the rebellion against God and the law which exposes sin and intensifies sin. That's why the law was given, to expose it and intensify the reality of it and our understanding of it. Uh, so when to be under the law is to be under sin. So just know that here as we go along. Um, he says, no way, of course not. We should never go on sinning just because we are under grace. The Christian cannot do that. Um, 16, look there. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? So again, we, we, hear, we see here that we are entering into this analogy. He's trying to give a reason for why we shouldn't use grace to go on sinning. And he says, look, you can either be underneath the law on sin or under grace. Now this analogy has its natural limitations. Um, just look at verse 19, right? He says that I'm using this analogy in human terms because of your natural limitations. Um, in other words, I don't think it, it, I think there it means that, uh, you know, we can't fully understand it. Everything is not one-to-one when it comes to slavery in terms of the Christian life. But it works because we all understand what it means to be underneath something. We all understand what it means to be a slave, whether you have been a slave or not. We understand what it means to be a servant. We understand obedience. We even understand allegiance. You know, one way in which slavery in Paul's day was a little bit different or a different facet that we don't see in America's sinful involvement in slavery is that uh, some slavery or some aspects of slavery were actually designed to help the poor. In other words, if you were so poor that you were wondering how you were going to get your last meal and, he was, and you were facing death, you could potentially sell yourself to your neighbor for a certain period of time, so that you could actually live, right? Your neighbor could actually take care of you. You could go on living. You could go and get food. You could have a job. And then eventually, you could even uh, not only be freed, but uh, you know, live a very good life underneath your master. And so there's even aspects of allegiance in this idea of slavery that is presented here. So when it says slavery, you know, don't think America's sinful involvement in slavery but he says here, look, whoever you present yourself to, that is your master. It may, it's, it's very simple here. And Paul applies this to sin and God. If you present yourself to Lord sin, for example, if you bow the knee to Lord sin, you serve at the pleasure of Lord sin. If you present yourself to God, the preeminent one, Christ Jesus the Lord, well, you serve at the pleasure of the preeminent one. Whoever, whatever you submit to, that person or thing reigns over you. This is the general point made here, right? We all serve at the pleasure of some master. So what that means for us is you guys, every single individual in here, you, got, you are a willing slave of someone or something. You are a willing slave of someone or something. It could be, you could be a slave of money. 
and whatever it is that money brings. I mean, just imagine this right here. We're just trying to show that we all are slaves of something. Um, just think of what you want out of life, right? your 2018 goals or whatever. Maybe, maybe you want a certain amount of money. Um, maybe you have a certain goal for your own net worth, right? I mean, what if your boss, in a meeting with him, put $100 million on the table? $100 million. And uh, he, he put it on the table and said, look, this could be yours if you make the company your life. I mean, really, put yourself in that situation, that possibility, that would equal freedom, right? Freedom from all sorts of different things. This could equal freedom for your family. Not only your immediate family, but your family for generations to come down the line. You could take care of your parents. I mean, really, what would you do with that money? You could take care of your parents. You could take care of your extended family, some of which are living in Mexico or in Asia, etc. And generations down the line could be secure. Now, I'm pretty sure that there are maybe some here who are thinking, well, sign me up now, right? All that I am is yours. Take me now. Have your way with me, $100 million. I serve at the pleasure of Lord money. But maybe to you, money is not a particularly useful master. What you love, let's say, in that situation with the boss and the money, um, what you really love is the master's praise. The boss's praise. He tells me that I am invaluable to the company. He says that I have skills and abilities that the company needs, and it feels good to be noticed, frankly. I don't get that at home. I don't get that from my children or my husband. It feels good to be honored for once in my life. Yes, it comes with security, $100 million, sure, that might be useful. But in his eyes, I am needed. I'm here, your response is, I'm here for whatever you need. Whatever you need, I am here. Company, I will make that my life. I am yours. I serve at the pleasure of yourself. You know, we could do this for a really long time in terms of whatever types of sins that we really struggle with. We could line up all the possible lords that we all here are tempted to serve, whether it be family, maybe your own parents and their wishes for you instead of God's. It could be your own comfort, where Christ calls you to sacrifice, pick up your cross, you worship the God of comfort, Lord comfort. You could worship security. You could be giving yourselves right now to endless hedonistic pleasure, sinful immorality. Go on and on. Power, ability, escape, which is similar to comfort. Whatever it is, we are all willing slaves who serve at the pleasure, once again, of something, someone. What means, which means that right now, in your hearts, something, someone drives all that you do at some sort of root level. But do you know what? Out of all the possible masters we could sell our souls to, make it even more graphic, pimp out ourselves to, we are either, the Bible says, slaves to sin or slaves to God. There's only two. We are either slaves to sin or slaves to God. That's the only two options here in our passage. Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. So here you see sin and obedience. Those are really the two masters. Ultimately, when you see obedience there, don't think, that, don't think here we're talking about morality. He uses these words of slaves of obedience, slaves of righteousness. And 
ultimately, look there in verse 22, slaves of God, to really all mean, to all really refer to what it means to be slaves of God. It means to be a Christian. To be a Christian, to love Jesus, is to be a slave of obedience. It's to be a slave of righteousness, that is God's righteousness. Ultimately, verse 22, a slave of God. Don't forget to, when you hear this slave of obedience, think back to Romans chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul talks about how he lives according to Christ's call to bring about the obedience of faith in Christ. But in this passage, really, there are two options, and we either follow, you either follow the way of sin or the way of Christ. We all put ourselves at the disposal of unrighteousness or righteousness. That's it. It's just one way or the other. Now think back to my example of the $100 million and the boss. It sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? It sounds harsh to hear and draw the conclusion like, okay, so if I slave away for family security and I give my life to pursue $100 million as my ultimate life goal, are you saying that it's sinful? Friends, that's actually a really good question, a very good question. That's exactly the question that we ought to be asking as we follow Jesus Christ. Um, The issue is not, should I work for family security? So let me read you a, a proverb here, or just refer to it. There is a proverb that actually says, it is good to leave an inheritance to your children's children, if you can. Straight out of the Bible, it is good to leave an inheritance to your children's children. The issue is not, should you work for family security? The issue is whether or not you actually make it your God. The issue is whether that becomes your life goal. See, friends, the Bible says that God's good design for his created people, his life goal for Adam and Eve and you as God's created people, their life goal was to live for God. It was to live underneath God, and it was to live in relationship to God for him, under him, and with him. And all these things were, that that was like the perfect scenario in the garden with Adam and Eve, for him, under him, and with the only loving master, the only master there is in town. The huge problem is that Adam and Eve, they wanted out. They wanted to live for themselves, not for God. They wanted to live according to their own rules, not underneath God's rule. And in sinning against God, their very own maker, where they were to live in relationship with their maker, good, loving, gracious maker, they actually set themselves against him. That's what Romans says. We are hostile. We are actually enemies against God. So back to the question of working for family security. Is it truly righteous then, good, glorifying to God to work for the security and safety of your family's lives? while rejecting and ignoring the Lord of life himself? I think the obvious answer would be no. The Lord gave us our life goal. We just went and changed it. And this is, by definition, sin. Just think once again, you know, a family relationship. You know, if your parents have a life goal for you, let's say you're, you know, 10 years old, they know what's best. We trust and we assume in the perfect situation where you have a perfect and loving parent, if you didn't care about what they wanted and you sought to build your own family security, but you rejected the head of the family, like, who does that? It doesn't make sense. It's nonsensical. It does not make sense. If God is not your Lord, this is you, if God is not your Lord, where you are living for Him, under Him, in relationship to Him, then friends, no matter what you are doing, you are rejecting God Himself. 
Going back to the question, should we go on sinning because we are under grace? The answer is, of course not. This analogy is used because the Christian who submits to Christ will not serve sin. They serve the Lord, the maker, the creator of everything. We live for him, under him, and with him. The Christian is a willing slave of righteousness. We are for his righteousness. And this brings us to point number two. two. Christians are slaves to righteousness. This is the words that he uses there at the end of 18. I'll just go ahead and read 17 and 18, though. Look there. I find this really fascinating, by the way, before we read this. You know, in 16, he gives an explanation, right? He gives this analogy. He's going to bring it up. He wants us to enter into it. But he brings up the idea. But it's almost as if he says, but it's never just an idea, guys. This actually is bearing on your lives. And he, he, he erupts into this Thanksgiving, right, 17. But thanks be to God that you, it's not just an idea. This is a personal thing. It has implications on you. That you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Christians are slaves of righteousness, willing slaves of righteousness. Again, slave here of righteousness, really a slave of God, as it says in verse 22. But if you've been joining, if you've been with us in the book of Romans, there's a question, right, that he wants us to ask and an answer that he wants us to reflect on. He wants us to get, he wants us to look at this transfer, what we were, what we are now, and of course, how exactly that happened. And so I hope you guys are asking, you're thinking again, well, gosh, how did that happen? Because he says there in verse 17 that we were once slaves of sin. Sin was over us. Sin reigned over us. Sin dominated us. It exercised its rule over us. We went from being slaves of sin to being there in verse 17, obedient from the heart to the teaching to which you were committed. The it gets us to ask the question of how did this happen? And the simple answer is that God has done it. The Lord, in fact, has rescued us. Did you notice how verse 17 starts? It is praise. That's why God, Paul here is thanking God, because God has done it. What has he done? He has set us free from sin. He has, there in verse 18, made us slaves of righteousness. Verse 22 says the exact same thing. We have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. Those are all passive verbs, by the way. You know what a passive verb is? It means something has been done to us. God has set us free. He has enlisted us into his service where we now are willing slaves of righteousness. So how does the change of allegiances come about in the Christian? Well, it's because of what God has done in Christ. Do you remember Romans chapter 6, verse 6? You can go ahead and look there. It says that our old self, right? That's when we were ruled by sin, under the dominion of sin, when we were in Adam. It was crucified, it says there. That's interesting, right? Something killed it. It was crucified. We did not kill it. It says something there killed it. It died. And praise God that it did so in the death of Christ. As Christ himself actively offered up himself to die on the cross. Our old self was crucified with him. That is, in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So remember, with Christ as the Christian's trailblazer, right? what Christ neutralizes in his path, all that stands in his way, 
He neutralizes in His people's path. As Christ went to the cross, into the grave, so He took our sin with Him, and the wrath that we deserved was upon Him. This is the gospel, where we deserve to die. That's what Romans chapters 1, 2, 3 say. Chapter 4 says we deserve death, we deserve condemnation for our sin, for having rebelled against God. But God in His grace and His love sends Jesus Christ, who takes on flesh, lives the perfect life that we should have, fulfills the laws, demands, He dies the death we should have, where we should have died on the cross, Christ dies for us. And then in His resurrection, He loosed the chains of sin and death. So now, those who follow Him, believe in Him, and trust in Him, the chains of sin and death are forever loosed on us. And what is secured is safe passage to God for His people. Eternal life with Jesus Christ. And so in the cross, we are justified. We are declared righteous. Where once we were unrighteous, now we can be declared righteous through faith in His blood. God has done it, friends, just as He said He would. Do you hear that in this morning's Scripture reading passage? Go ahead and turn back there to Jeremiah. Go ahead and turn to this morning's Scripture passage in Jeremiah. And here I'm just pointing out the fact that God Himself promised to do all that He had done. This is the new covenant, and what we're emphasizing here is God's active work. If you look there in verse 33, chapter 31, verse 33, chapter 31, verse 33. This is the passage that Oscar read for us. Um, you look there in 31, 33, God prophesies through Jeremiah. The people were wayward. They were given to sin. What's God going to do about it? He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. He says, I will make for the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, what's God going to do? I myself will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's all God acting right there upon wayward, sinful, rebellious people. That's the operation of God's sovereign grace to save and rescue those who are at enmity with God. And go over to, go over to Ezekiel. Speaking of the same thing, Ezekiel chapter 36, just turn over two large books. You get Isaiah, you have Ezekiel. And we're looking at Ezekiel chapter 36. Again, this is a prophecy of what God would do in the future. He's going to move in salvation history to accomplish what He planned. He's going to gather His people together through the power of the Spirit, ultimately in the servant that is Jesus Christ. And what does He say there in verse 26? He says to a wayward, rebellious people, He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What's he going to do? 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In relation to Romans 6.17, you hear echoes of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all that God would do as he brings about the obedience from the heart to the teaching to which you were committed. The sovereign operation, the sovereign and saving operations of God's grace. Where sin once exercised its dominion over us, 
God, according to His grace and mercy, comes along in the sovereign operation, the saving operation of God's grace, and He saves wayward people. He delivers us from the sin and judgment that we deserve. I mean, thank God, just as Paul is doing, thank God that we are delivered from death and condemnation and that we now, Christian, have peace with God, grace, and eternal life. This is your master, Christian. This is the one that you are under. This is your Lord, the one who rules over you. And the one that we should be saying, rule over me all the more, because you are that good. Now, if you're visiting with us once again and you're exploring Christianity, this willing submission and obedience to Jesus Christ and His commands is to be the general pattern of the Christian life. This is the fruit of salvation. It is righteousness. It is Christ-likeness. Now, I say willing because me as a Christian, I'm not coerced to submit. I'm not obeying against my will. No, I want to do what Christ commands. I want to follow Jesus Christ. The Christian loves Jesus Christ. And all of us as Christians, at a fundamental level, loves Jesus Christ. Not only that, though, we want to learn to love Christ more and more and more. This is sanctification. This is the process of growing in Christ-likeness or growing in holiness that never ends until we are dead and then raised and with God. So keep that in mind. All of us Christians at a fundamental level love Christ and want to grow and ought to grow in our loving Jesus Christ. So we learn, we grow in thinking the way Christ thinks. We grow, we learn to live in the way Christ lived. And we grow in how to love just as Christ loves. So as an example, you know, there was a time at my own life, there was a time when I had one example, just one, out of all the different facets of my own sin, there was a time when I had intense hatred towards other people, genuine intense hatred towards other people. I was a slave of sin, and I had no problem at all hating other people. And in fact, to state it positively, I wanted to hate other people, particularly my own enemies, right, the people who were against me. I gave myself to hating other people. But when I became a follower of Jesus, all of a sudden I had a problem hating other people. So the question is why? Now if you are a Christian, you might know the similar experience. It might not be hate. You could replace it with like cheating other people. It could be like abusing other people, using their bodies in ways that you shouldn't. It could be like stealing from other people. Whatever it is, just replace it there if you're a Christian. But why is it that I began to have a problem hating other people? Well, I learned that hating God's created people was a sin. That God did not want it. He did not design people to do this. God doesn't want us to hate and hurt His human beings. Right? That's a really good reason to have a problem with any sin, right? Because God the Almighty says it, therefore I ought to believe it. He doesn't want me to, therefore I shouldn't. That enough is reason to hate sin. Let's be clear. Some people, some people speak disparagingly. You know, all oh, these Christians, they say that... Uh, Actually, I was talking to somebody just yesterday who said, you know, oh, I, you know, I've talked to some Christians who say uh, they don't want to do certain things because God says so. Like, that's not, that's not good enough reason. I said, whoa, hold on a second. I told him, I said, if God is the God of the universe, that enough is a reason to hate something because God himself hates it. But the wonderful thing, friends, is that as you mature as a Christian, as I grow 
and grew as a Christian in learning to think and live and love like Jesus Christ, not only did I not want to hate other people, but I positively wanted to love my enemies that I formerly hated. I started seeing people who were out to get me as people who needed help just like me. I wanted them to know as I grew in Christ-likeness, as I grew in holiness, as I grew in knowing what God wanted for all people, I came to want for them what God wanted for them by God's grace. I wanted them to know the gospel of grace, just as he had given me grace in the gospel. So I wanted them to know the gospel. The reason why I bring this up is because I want to make clear that the Christian life is to be a life of righteousness in Christ and growing in the righteousness of Christ. It's a life of entering into Christ and all that is Christ-like. I mean, just meditate on that for a moment. Christ is the beautiful one. You know, he's called that in uh, Isaiah. We behold the beauties of the king. And all that is Christ-like is everything that is beautiful. Growing in Christ-likeness, some people just think this is laws that are placed upon the Christian. There are laws, yes. But if you are a real Christian, a growing Christian, who's learning to love, think, and live like Christ, here we are entering into beholding and knowing beauty. Learning what beautiful really is. Because it is Christ-like. That's, a, that's the taste of the heavenly things for me. That's a wonderful thing. This learning, this striving, this willing submission to the ways and wills of Jesus Christ is to mark all of Christ's people at some basic level. Now, if you're a new Christian, you're learning to do that. It's exciting. If you're an older Christian, been a Christian for 30 years, still, you are learning to do this. This is the takeaway. If there is one, if you're, if you're investing in Christianity, you want to learn who these Christians are, if there is one who goes by the name of Christian but possesses no desire for righteousness, finds Christ not beautiful at all, gives themselves not to righteousness, loving Jesus, but instead unrighteousness, where they are not repenting of their sin, they are refusing to give up sin, this passage tells us we know exactly who they obey. They are slaves of sin, not God. Really clear, very simple. Now to speak to Christians, some of you guys here, I know that there might be some of you here who maybe read this and think, you know, man, when I look at my own life, uh, I really wonder, am I under grace or am I under sin? And members ask the question because you still wrestle with sin, as we all do, but you might do so in an intense way Guilt and the shame that follows, sometimes in an ungodly guilt and an ungodly shame. There is a godly guilt and a godly shame that leads to repentance and a greater love for Jesus. But friends, you realize that even in wrestling with the things that you do and asking the very questions that you do, even in your brokenness over sin and the shame and the guilt, and in reaching out to us, to me, to your friends, these things in and of themselves for the Christian are all evidence of a changed heart. They're evidence that you do want to obey from the obedience of the heart to the teaching that you were committed to. Those are reflections of a heart that has, in fact, been born again. Just stop and think about it for a moment. If you became a Christian later on in life, I'm pretty sure that there was a point in your life where you did not care at all about God. I know that in my own life. You heard about this Jesus Christ as Lord maybe then, you knew that there was evidence of his existence and greatness at some basic level, just as Romans 1 speaks about, that we all know this, even those who reject God, 
they know that God exists, yet they reject Him in their sin. Maybe you even read God's Word here and there. There you stood, in God's created domain, but striving for your own dominion. Pursuing whatever you thought was best for you in that very moment without a care for what the Lord and Maker, your Creator, thought or His commands or His fame or His honor. But friends, now your eyes have been opened. You behold the King and His beauty and all that is rightly beautiful and now you actually desire to live as instruments of His righteousness. Friends, learning to think, act, and love like Christ, this sanctification... You know, you taste, you tasted the goodness, you, you, you know the power of Christ. But here you're called to grow in it. And obviously if you're called to grow in it, it means that you aren't fully there yet. And this growth, frankly, takes a lot of time. It takes a whole entire lifetime. So friends, if you tend, if you're that type of Christian who tends towards discouragement about your own sins, friends, remember that you were formerly a willing slave of a very different master. And for so long... Remember that. Imagine how many times in your own life you walk those sinful paths of wanting, those paths of feeling, those paths of thinking, those paths of doing. Those are all the footsteps of... But now, after you have been rescued from your sin by the grace of God in Christ Jesus, by faith, according to the power of the Spirit, now you are learning to be and to act in Jesus Christ, learning to love like Christ. And it, friends, is not always easy. But God is good and faithful to help. In that moment where you are maybe feeling overwhelmed because of your sin, friends, there too God is faithful to help. If you find yourself struggling against sin, you realize that God is helping you, Christian, by revealing to you those darkened desires those twi- that twisted thinking, that ugly doing, that maybe you didn't really know was in that dark heart of yours. That is God helping you grow in sanctification. That's what he's doing. And friends, that excites me. You might not be excited because that might be a chop to your own self-righteousness that you are so used to walking in. But friends, that is exciting to, the- and exciting to God when we are thinking rightly. This blows up, right, your struggle, this illumination of the darkness of your heart, right? I get that it blows up your preconceived notions of who you thought you were, who you are trying to be in your own self-righteousness, and that process, therefore, is hard. It's that much harder because you're coming to realize, once again, the sinfulness of your own heart. But it is nevertheless exciting to see the sovereign operation of God's Spirit in your life. He shines His holy light on that darkened path in order that He might lead you out of it. All by His grace. To God who loves you, right, despite your To God who has already set love upon you. This doesn't threaten His own grace. This doesn't get Him to change His own desire. He just spotlights something that He knows was already there. And friends, He wants to go about the process with you of fixing it. Sometimes, indeed, it involves... It, or the, the process, involves going through tears and hurt. Sometimes it involves your own disappointment. But how wonderful it is that it should also involve a stronger grasp of Christ and an appreciation of all that is Christ-like. Growing in holiness, right, this sanctification, can without doubt feel like a long process. 
But God is good and faithful to help. He has transformed your heart already, and now he's about the work of training it. And the wonderful thing is that he will, he promises to finish what he started. Now, given it is a process, does this mean that the Christian can give himself to sin? This is the question. Does it mean that Christians can give themselves to sin? The answer is no. Does it mean that the Christian can kind of kick back and take it easy? The answer is no. This brings us to point number three. Since Christians are slaves to righteousness, Paul says, live as slaves of righteousness. Since we are slaves of righteousness, Paul says, live as slaves of righteousness. Look in the middle of verse 19. He says there, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, he says, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. This is an imperative. This is a command. He says, do this. Present your members as slaves of righteousness. And this is a repeat of verse 13. Present yourselves to God and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Right? He's just saying, once again, don't go back to your former masters. You could be easily enslaved once again. Don't live in sin, but live under God, for God, and with God. Did you notice, though, in the reading of uh, the passage earlier, did you, did you notice that the motivations for why you, Christian, ought to pursue righteousness? Some people with a confused understanding of God, they think, oh, you know, these commands of holiness are there because God, he's just a slave driver. He is a wicked taskmaster, and all he wants to do is just to get us to fail, point it out that we're all going to go to hell and things like that. That's not the motivation here. Let's just read again, 19 to the end there. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you notice there who the wicked taskmaster is? It is not God. It is actually, friends, sin. This is the first reason we are to pursue righteousness as Christians. He gives us right here. Sin is a wicked taskmaster. Dare I say, a bastard of a taskmaster. Let's be really clear. If you are struggling with sin, I want you to see sin clearly, and so does God. Its end leads to death. Sin always promises freedom, but in the end, sin always enslaves, and and worse, leaves you in the dead. Look at verse 20. What does he say? For when you were slaves to sin, You were free in regard to righteousness. Here he says, you were free, right? This is the promise. Sin offers us some sort of aspect of tantalizing freedom in the moment. But look what sin does, verse 21. But what fruit were you at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. This is the classic bait and switch. Bait with supposed life, but it really only leads to death. Paul here helpfully stops us in our tracks, like a good pastor he is. And he encourages us to pursue Christ Jesus by looking at how despicable Lord's sin really is 
when you serve at his pleasure. What benefit does he say? What fruit did you get in your own life over the last many decades from sin? You can think, friends, think very practically about sin's allure to you in your own specific sins, and then sin's supposed payout in your own life. In the moment, sin always offers greater benefits than Christ in the lies. He promises greater freedom, greater satisfaction, greater fulfillment. But what is the end? Sin robs you and leaves you in the grave. One way to think about it is like long-term credit card debt. It holds out immediate benefits, but doesn't tell you that long-term debt will actually wreak havoc in the future, and you are left with all of the compounding problems. It's all of that small print there. But here, God helpfully puts that magnifying glass to you, to all of us who read, to help us evaluate sin rightly based on its end. What is the end of those things? Eternal death in hell. Condemnation to give yourselves to anything other than God. And on the way to condemnation, verse 17 says you have impurity. You have lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. And then in verse 21, you have shame. Friends, sin is a scoundrel of a master, promising life, but really unleashing death. All right, thinking practically here on one specific area, but again, uh, you know, just insert your own sins here. How many of you guys at almost 30 years old at almost 40 years old, at almost 50 years old, are still wrestling with things your eyes beheld when you were 12. That's how, that's how bad, wicked, and evil sin is as a taskmaster. Did not sin promise a moment of arousal and satisfaction in your early teens? And did not sin go on then to enslave you to immorality for years and decades? And then in those years, now that you are saved, aren't you still having to wrestle with some of those effects? The sin and how that affects your loved ones. Did it build unity, strengthening the bonds of love? No. The ripples that started moving decades ago are felt as waves in your life and in the life of your family and all of your relationships and their friends. They bring destruction. Your sin breeds distrust. Your sin causes brokenness. Your sin brings about skepticism in others towards you. Your sin brings about discouragement, it brings about doubt, it brings about insecurity, it brings about competition, it brings about selfishness. Friends, we can do this with all sins. Not only the sins of immorality, but also the more respectable sins like laboring for riches and security for your family for generations to come. Sin is a despicable bastard of a taskmaster. And church, as we seek to live lives of righteousness, as friends, as we meet up to encourage one another in Christ, I encourage you guys to help expose sin for what it is in each other's lives. This, we're just doing exactly what God himself is helping us to do in Romans, and we're going to take that and do it in each other's lives. We want to help expose sin for what it is. Sin is a predator. And we need to shine the light of truth on the darkness that the Spirit of God and Jesus Christ would lead us away into the path of righteousness. Friends, we could do this with all sins. Fear of man. 
How did that benefit you? How did, how did you end up giving yourself to more sin? The praise of people. We could do it with lying. We could do it with cheating. We could do it with stealing. We could do it with laziness. Knowing sin, sin's strategy, bait and switch. We, therefore, in our relationships with one, with one another, we can ask of each other. So what is sin promising to you right now? What do you want in those times? And friends, what is really the end of those things? Adultery? Your heart is given to flirting? Ask yourselves, right? What is the end of those things? The one little hello and the smile leads to what tomorrow? A longer conversation of five to ten minutes in the office? And then that five and ten minute conversation in the office, what? You become friends and maybe even with good intentions you say, hey, let's go get, grab coffee. And friends, what does that lead you to in grabbing coffee alone by yourself? You end up giving your heart over here and you're, you're taking your heart away from your wife. And what, what is the end of that there? Sexual immorality. And what is the end of that upon your wife's experience of her marriage there? Is that strengthening the bonds of love or is that tearing them down? And what might the effect be upon your children? How might they look at you as the one who sins against your wife? The one who sins now against the children? What would divorce look like? How would your children feel growing up in a house where there was not a father? All of those things. He's just asking it right here. What is the end of those things? It is death. Knowing sin's strategy of the bait and switch, we can go ahead and ask ourselves those questions. What is sin promising? What is the allure of sin to you? And what is the end of those things? And as you talk about confess and talk about how you have already sinned, actually confess how you are tempted to sin. Right? This, is, this is like going into battle, right? You're going you're gonna to map out potential strategies of the enemy so that you could respond rightly. That's how you go into battle. You don't just sort of stroll into battle and then after you're already maimed say, oh yeah, I should have thought about that. You go into battle expecting sin to launch its attack against you. So friends, let me encourage you with the people that you uh, get together with for encouragement and spiritual accountability, confess how you are tempted when you might be tempted. And that would know you all the more. And even to back up a little bit, if you're not meeting up with somebody uh, for accountability, to be probed by the deeper things of God in relation to your own heart and the Word of God, let me encourage you to find somebody you trust and, and that you know loves you and just say, hey, let's get together and read the sermon passage that's going to come up uh, every single week and then we're just going to talk about it in relation to our own hearts and in relation to our own struggles. And I want you to ask me these types of questions. Uh, that would be a great and incredibly useful thing to do. That's the first reason there, why we should pursue righteousness, because sin is a wicked taskmaster. The second reason here why Christians should pursue righteousness, because God, on the other hand, is a loving Lord. We've seen sin, right, and what it looks like to serve sin. Now, he says, let's just look at the Lord. Verse 22, he says that the fruits you get underneath God, in peace with God, underneath Jesus Christ, in Christ, being raised with Christ, having peace with God, the grace that we have that is ongoing, having a strong hope, the fruit you get in walking with Him leads to sanctification that is growing in holiness and its end, well, that is eternal life. That's what it looks like to be ruled by God as your master. And when He says sanctification's end, once again, is eternal life, He does not mean that it is the basis of eternal life. We do not earn salvation. It is the natural product. Righteousness is a natural product of salvation by grace. 
the basis of eternal life there, Romans 3.28, is faith in Jesus Christ, not works. But here you see what he's doing here. The basic contrast is the ends of those things. Sin leads to death. Sin breeds more sin. Lawlessness unto lawlessness unto death. Here, though, living underneath God, you have righteousness leading to more righteousness, leading to eternal life, eternal salvation in Jesus Christ. The fruit that comes from, this is all fruit that comes from a restored relationship with God. And friends, believe me, it happens. This this righteousness unto more righteousness, right? So if you're discouraged today, or if you just need a little kick in the pants to get you uh, working and laboring in the power that God supplies, it is righteousness unto more righteousness. The decision to repent of your sins and follow Christ with conviction of sin and a fundamental love for Jesus, friends, you realize that in your conversion, in your bowing of the knee to the righteous one, in your love for Jesus Christ, where God has now already changed your heart, He has committed you to the teaching. That too has a heavenly ripple effect that leads unto life. Sin's ripple effect leads unto death. Heaven's ripple effect leads unto eternal life. And friends, this heavenly ripple effect is enough to overwhelm sins. Where God brings holiness and a love for holiness, where He teaches us to think and live and love as He does, That leads unto eternal life. And God does this in the Christian's life as he places us in different stages of our lives, as he brings us into different situations. There we have the opportunity to grow in sanctification. Just think about how Christ is doing that with each and every single one of you Christians. Students, for example. You now have the opportunity to learn to be faithful with your minds You have the opportunity to use your mind as a member alive to God. You take in information and you sift it through the Word of God. And with that information, you therefore learn to interact in God's world, in God's created domain. You sift out the bad ideas. You keep the most excellent ones, the things of God, and you live to His glory. And then He brings you, eventually, some of you guys, into the workforce. And then that's a new sphere of life where you are brought into greater sanctification. You learn greater Christ-likeness. You learn greater faithfulness, just showing up on time, being faithful with the things that God himself has given you. And even something as faithful as that, right, that bodes well for something as, or something as as seemingly little as showing up uh, early to work or on time to work, right, that bodes well for you as God has entrusted with you the most valuable possession of all, the gospel. That prepares you, too, even to be faithful in how to share the gospel with others down in the future. And then this also teaches us what it looks like to be righteous towards our body. There is the church, everything we can learn from and grow by being plugged into the local church, right? We never stop learning because God's plan for sanctification lasts an entire lifetime. So, right, those of you who are retired, right, you never stop growing in holiness. You continue to grow in holiness. You never stop growing. No matter what stage you are in, God is at work cultivating the faculties of our own bodies so that we can be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. We learn to think and live and love like Christ does, and we enter more into the righteousness 
that God calls us into. Friends, this is exciting. It ought to be exciting to you. Where God is at work teaching and training His people to be ambassadors of His kingdom, ambassadors of the gospel all the way to the ends of the earth and at different locations in His created domain. Every church is an outpost of the heavenly kingdom, an outpost of His grace and His love. And you, friends, are to be heralding the wonderful news of the King. So, friends, this gives me great encouragement as you battle your own sin and as I battle my own. I I hope that it does for you, too, knowing that God is drawing you into the righteousness that He Himself has called you to, these wonderful works. To sum up, you look there at Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death, the payment you deserve because of your sin is death. But the gift, the free gift of our gracious God for sinners who turn to Him is eternal life and eternal salvation. And it is for all who would repent of their sins and believe. Friends, God invites us into all that is beautiful because He Himself is beauty. If you're visiting with us as a non-Christian, friends, why would you not enter into these things? But be aware, God commands you to enter into these things and leave death and sin behind. To sum up, we all live live obedience to we all live lives of obedience to something. Christians, though, are slaves of righteousness, and thus Christians are to live lives of righteousness. But the more we know and the more we learn about Christ Jesus, why would we not want to live lives of righteousness? We know the wages of sin is death, eternal death in hell. We are under condemnation in Adam. But with God as our master, with Christ as our savior, we have new life in him. The so-called freedom that sin promises leaves you spiritually dead. But slavery to God brings, ironically, unimaginable freedom. Salvation and peace with God now, eternal life with Christ then. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that your grace is so powerful to change hearts as sinful as ours. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that because of your shed blood, sinners can now be declared righteous before you. And we are brought into this wonderful heavenly kingdom where your righteous law rules, your reign of grace rules. And Lord Jesus, you, the righteous one, yourself are glorified and magnified even in all of the righteous deeds and the righteous works you call us to. Lord, we pray that we would never make an excuse for sin. But in all things, we would recognize and desire that you are our Lord over us. In your name we pray. Amen.